You are listening to the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in San Sebastian. Wow, Francois Tomaso, a French stage winner in San Sebastian, eh? Yeah, French winners we have from time to time, <laughs> but uh, Cofidis uh, stage winners is quite rare. I mean, well, it had been rare for more than 15 years, well, for 15 years. So, yeah, Victor Lafay winning uh, here in San Sebastian, pretty close to the French border. Obviously, good news for the French because last year we had to wait for the penultimate stage to win uh, a stage, the French. This time, you know, the French win on day two, stage two, and uh, at Fukofidis, it's uh, yeah, almost a historical and hysterical day. I'll tell you more about it. Indeed, yes. Well, that's Francois Thomasot, of course, and we're also here in San Sebastian, or Donostia, as the Basques call it, with Mitch Docker. Hello, Mitch. You're still rocking the Basque beret there, and you've gone for the grey one today. What's the strategy behind that, the change uh, of colour? Yeah, I just want to change it up. You know, I bought two, so I thought I must get the wear out of the second one, but it's my last day you know i'm probably not gonna keep it going once we get to france i'll, I'll don a new look and present that to everyone tomorrow well you do know the stage tomorrow is still in the basque country so you can probably get one more day out of it maybe go back to the blue one i don't know i've got an idea you know given the recent news of the ashes victory um oh, yeah you in celebration warned. of that you so were warned about this i will bring something out <laughs> in to celebrate the ashes victory tomorrow I'll bring out a one-day suspension from the cycling podcast for any more Ashes mentions. We're not the cricket podcast. Fr French listeners, this is cricket, so if you don't know what they're talking about, don't worry. <laughs> well, actually, a test match is kind of the, the, the Anglo-Australian sporting equivalent of the Tour de France, really, isn't it? It's uh, an event that unfolds over a long, lazy afternoon, and then there's, there's sudden excitement and, oh. well... In the case of the Ashes, an Australian win. And in the case of the cycling, Francois, a French stage win today. We ought to get to the tale of the attack. It's time for the tale of the attack. Well, it was the second of the two stages in the Spanish part of the Basque country, starting in the Basque capital, Vitoria, and finishing here in San Sebastian. And, well, mimicking the Classica San Sebastian route with the climb over the Jaisquibel climb and then the plummet down into the centre of the city here by the ocean. Beautiful uh, city, isn't it, here? It was a real powerful break, but a small break, taking on that 208.9 kilometres, pretty tricky task for the king of the mountains Nielsen Paulus of EF Education Edvald Bosenhagen awakening from some kind of slumber for Total Energies it's been a while since we've seen him on the attack and Remy Cavagna of Quickstep of Sudal Quickstep first corrections corner on the team sponsor mm. names there Cavagna dropped back uh, with about 68 kilometres to go and he was caught by the peloton the break had been up around the sort of four and a half nudging five minute mark but they weren't given an awful lot of leeway with 40 kilometres to go there was still a two minute lead and then on the penultimate climb Bosenhagen was dropped by Paulis who went on to sew up another day at least well several days probably in the polka dot jersey but he was still hunting the stage win and had an outside shot perhaps of the yellow jersey a real outside shot given what happened behind there was another little crash for ben o'connor he went down yesterday and lost a bit of time on the ground again today and lost a bit more time and then came the fireworks on that final climb the hayes cabell it's uh, well it was uae team emirates who 
really laid down the gauntlet once again. Felix Grosschartner, who was so impressive yesterday, went really hard but seemed to blow up his own legs. But it didn't matter because they had Rafael Maika there to set a really hard pace for a very long time. It put Thibaut Pino out at the back. It put Julian Alaphilippe out at the back. With 600 metres to go, Adam Yates took over, perhaps looking for those uh, time bonus seconds at the top of the climb. But then Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard came out to play Pogacar was first over the top, so he got eight seconds. I mean, it was a heck of a sprint for those seconds at the top. And lo and behold, Pogacar and Vingegaard were clear over the top. But Vingegaard was clearly marking for Jumbo Visma and his teammate Wout van Aert. Pogacar kind of persisted for a little bit, but they sat up and were caught with around 12 kilometres to go for the line. Then Peo Bilbao of Bahrain went clear on the flat. I thought for a while he was looking very good and might need to change his name to Peo Donastia maybe if he'd won the stage. He was then caught and then there was a little bit of a flurry on the run-in. Emmanuel Buchmann had a go, Tom Pidcock had a go, but then man of the day, Victor Lafay, Coffert is his stage winner, the first one since... Sylvain Chavanel in Montluçon stage 19 of the 2008 Tour de France he took a flyer Van Aert and the rest reacted but Lafay was strong enough to hold on a little bit of damage overall for O'Connor lost another 58 seconds Pino Amadouas lost 2.25 Danny Martinez another big loser today another 7 minute shift should also mention Richard Carapaz as we expected last night didn't start the stage because of his injuries from yesterday's crash so Adam Yates still in the yellow jersey ahead of his teammate Pogacar and his twin brother Simon Yates. Lafay up to fourth and he will also be wearing the handsome dark green points jersey tomorrow. Paulus, as I said, king of the mountains and the French love San Sebastian because the last time there was a stage finish here, Dominic Arnoux won. Mm. 1992 that was. And we'll discuss all of that in the next part. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN. Every purchase of a two-year plan with NordVPN will receive a bonus one month on top. Now, a VPN can be invaluable when you are looking to increase your online security. I'm here in San Sebastian. I'm currently hooked up to my mobile phone it's connected to my laptop i'm using the 5g to get online but i've got my nordvpn switched on it's basically a virtual private network and it means that the data is safe and secure while you're online now if you want to take advantage of nordvpn's offer go to nordvpn.com tcp it's risk-free as well because you'll have a 30-day money-back guarantee so if it's not for you that's absolutely fine there are many other advantages to having a virtual private network such as nordvpn and one of them is that if you're away traveling as i am you can keep up with your favorite series on your streaming service which may be uh, geo-blocked when you travel to another country, you find you can't watch the same films or episodes of your favourite series. But with your NordVPN, you can basically pretend that you're in your home country. So that's one of the other side benefits. But the online security is the thing that I signed up for. And if you want to take advantage of that, go to nordvpn.com TCP for the cycling podcast. 
notice you've got a bottle of champagne. Do you have the bottle of champagne every day or is that just today? I know very well Castelnau, which is the sponsor of the Tour de France. And the boss, he, he gave me some bottles and he said, you have to put it in the fridge before the start of the race. Because if you do not do it, then you will never win a stage. So I am very superstitious. And so we put it on the Friday before the, the Tour de France. And I, I'm just waiting now. And uh, if, if we are opening it today or tomorrow, of course, it will work. But don't, don't say that to other teams. <laughs> <laughs> That's your marginal gain. Yes, it's a marginal gain for Cofidis. Is that why Cofidis have not been winning for the last 10 years? They haven't had a bottle of champagne in the fridge? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, true, very true. Because when I had them, they said, we, ne- we have never champagne in the fridge. I say, okay, we have to deal with that. <laughs> so if it's just coming from that, we will do it in, before every race. Well, that was Orla Shenoui talking to Cedric Vasseur, the general manager of the Cofidis team, five years ago, 2018, for an episode of Kilometre Zero, in which Vasseur was uh, talking about the long Cofidis stage win drought at the Tour de France, but also a tradition that he had introduced, which was to put a bottle of champagne on ice in the Cofidis team bus at the start of the tour with the hope that they would be able to open it in the event of a stage win and well I wonder what sort of state that bottle of champagne will be in if it was a good one it might be better five years on Francois but it's been a long long wait for Cofidis one of the biggest French teams to win a stage of the Tour de France well if it's been on the fridge for 15 years I mean it needs to be really good champagne to age that well uh, but some, some, some actually do but I don't know we'll, we'll see I mean I, I, I mentioned that to Simon Geschke I couldn't talk to Cédric Vasseur about the bottle of champagne and ask him about it because actually I was w- watching the end of the stage uh, behind the team bus on a bench and when I I got up and I went to, towards the Cofidis bus and the first person I met was uh, Cédric Vasseur and I tried to stop him, you know, by spreading my, my arms and he fell into my arms, you know, screaming, yes, yes, and he went, I couldn't talk to him. He went, you know, running towards the uh, the, the podium and obviously congratulate Victor Lafay for that long-awaited uh, uh, stage win. And uh, yeah, it was yeah, it was quite moving. You know, it, it was you know you could tell you know he'd, he'd been really looking for that for so long and you know kind of a kind of a jinx uh, ended today. And actually, it's it's, it's not the, the likeliest uh, you know. Uh, rider to uh, to do that, Victor Lafay is a is a strange man. I I, I was hanging around the bus and I went to another uh, t- towards another bus and I I, I, I walked across Christian Guiberto who is now uh, DS for DSM, uh, but he was with Cofidis last year. He said he was so glad because he said, you know, Victor is an artist, and he mm. compared uh, uh, Lafay a little bit to Henri Leconte, you know, the tennis player, former French tennis player who could be the best player in the world uh, one set and totally dreadful the next. And, and that, that's, that was the case with Lafay. He has a very up and down career uh, and lots of injuries, crashes, and most of all, he had COVID many times. And actually, he was on the tour because of COVID. He shouldn't have been on the tour. He was, he was supposed to be doing the Giro, but he got COVID before the Giro, was out of the Giro, and only found out he was going to do the tour like yeah, a little bit more than a week ago. So, yeah, unexpected. So, you know, he came here totally relaxed. Apparently, well, the, the, you know, COVID is no longer affected his form because as we know, we saw him with the, the big guys yesterday in, in stage one. And once again, he was there. And I mean, 
we were struggling for words, weren't we, uh, Mitch, about his effort in the last K? Well, it's just before you say that, I actually heard today, and I don't know if this is correct, someone can go out there and find this out. Apparently, he had the fastest time up the climb yesterday because he started a little bit behind and he ended with the front guys. His time on Strava or wherever they recorded it, I'm assuming Strava, was the fastest time on the climb. Yeah, I think we were all impressed with just how powerful he looked going up that climb. Not the sort of rider you expect to be in that company. And when he took a flyer, he was absolutely all in, wasn't he? I mean, when you look at the way the stage played out, it was obvious that when Pogacar went uh, for those seconds and Vingegaard marked him, Vingegaard was not going to go through and do anything to try and keep the two of them away, although it was kind of tantalising to see the, the number one and number two favourite for the tour off the front. It was obvious that today was going to be Wout van Aert's day, as Matt White alluded to yesterday. Not too many opportunities for van Aert to get his own moment of glory in this tour before everything goes all in for Vingegaard. So Lafay really took advantage of that because yeah. Jumbo Visma, who looked good on that run-in, Tish Benut did a lot of work, didn't he? He was kind of faded back and then came back up to the front again to close a gap, I think, when, uh, well, I can't remember which of the moves it was, possibly Pidcock. And then, of course, it was Kelderman, mm. uh, who's not a, he's not a kind of uh, runaway no. train, is he, on the flat, Kelderman? Yeah. That's, what, that's what actually what Lafay said. He said, he said well, I, I, I decided, I could, he wanted to attack uh, before that. He's a good... Uh, you know he's good on descents because his, his father is a rally driver so I guess he might you know he might have some genes there you know for descent but when he saw they couldn't do that he said he, he said that you know on the under the red flame he thought well the only guy who has an interest in chasing behind me is Van Aert but Van Aert won't do it because if he does it he can't sprint so he said so obviously probably they were going to watch each other and I have a chance that's what he did and he was uh, was yeah re- lots of power and lots of wit as well. I mean, he, he, he really, you know, played his game uh, to perfection today. And as I said, Sylvain Chavanel in Montluçon, stage 19 of the 2008 Tour de France. 115 different riders have won tour stages since then, including Chavanel for Quickstep. So Cofidis's long drought, I mean, for a team of their budget, their longevity, they've been in the peloton since 1997. I mean, just a little potted history, Francois. I mean, this is Cyril Guimard's team that kind of succeeded the Renault and System U teams, wasn't it? It was uh, kind of the, the French super team of the late 90s, early 2000s. Of course, they signed Lance Armstrong yeah, uh, they did before the, the team started. He was recovering from his testicular cancer, never actually pulled on the jersey in a race for them, of course. No. There was a bit of a legal dispute, wasn't there? Yeah, and, and then Guimard left, also left the team. And, and what, what happened later, as you know as well, that they, they were like many other teams. They had their d- own doping scandal, uh, in which actually Cédric Vasseur was in the team at the time. Uh, they, they, they were taken to the, to the police, uh, questioned, remember uh, Philippe Gaumont. I mean, they, they had lots of, uh, of riders. Well, David Miller, of course. Yeah, David, I mean, Miller David Miller was one, most, one of the most prominent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so there, there was a huge moment of trouble for the team, but it, it never folded because the, uh, the the leader, the the, the the owner of the team, the Cofidis, you know, uh, owner of the brand, Mr. Migraine. Yes, a strange name, but uh, is <laughs> a great cycling fan, and I mean, and, and he knew that Cofidis is a lone company, and uh, you know, to, just to have the the, the the name, you know, of the brand, uh, you know, on 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 a cycling race is 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 you know is what he he wanted. So yeah, the, maybe that long draft owes 
uh, a lot to that uh, you know doping scandal which was really you know in a, in a way shattering uh, Bradley Wiggins uh, wrote for uh, uh, Coffee List mm. as well so you know you're, they're the great riders they're the long history and uh, but I guess yeah they were kind of cut in there in their uh, you know in, in their ways uh, with like many French teams after the, the doping scandals and that might explain that and then you have the jinx and then probably the stress of you know underperforming and uh, that, yeah that's how jinxes are made and I mean if you think back to the 2008 Tour de France Euskaltel Euskadi the Basque team was uh, part of the Tour de France peloton there that's just how long ago it was uh, Francois you mentioned Simon Geschke a Tour de France stage winner in his own right, of course, not for coffee dish, but you spoke to him at the finish and you mentioned the bottle of champagne. I did. Yes, uh, very excited, very happy for Victor. He showed that he was uh, super strong yesterday already and uh, I think he was also a bit frustrated to have missed the attack with the Yetz brothers. And yeah, today he did a wonderful job. I didn't know how it happened, but uh, for sure it, for us, for, for everyone, it was a bit unexpected. We knew that he's strong, but to win already uh, on day two, is really big and uh, yeah, I think it's not a secret that Kofidis didn't win for a long time in the Tour and for a French team there's no race where it's more difficult to win a stage especially for, uh, for a more underdog team like we are and uh, the goal is always to win a stage but of course it's, uh, you have a few big teams that win four or five stages each and then for the rest for, for all the other 18 teams uh, there are only five six stages left to win and yeah, it's never easy and to, to do it on day two is a big relief for sure. I had it in the back of my head after his performance yesterday that today might be a good day for him too with, with this condition. But yeah, of course it's surprising. You never you never expect uh, a stage win in the tour. It's quite You're aware that there's a bottle of champagne in the bus that's, that's been waiting there for fi 15 years, yeah. <laughs> The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Producer Tom stepping in here to tell you, well, to thank, actually, Science in Sport for their continued support of all the things we do here at the cycling podcast. And one thing they also support, as well as us, is a race called the Tour de Lunsar, which takes place every year in Sierra Leone. It was the subject of the most recent episode of Service Course. And here, Science in Sport CEO Stephen Moon tells us how he got involved. We initially sent off quite, quite a large quantity of nutrition, and, and the race wasn't even in our minds right then. So... We got some nutrition out because we thought it would help people learn how to ride longer distances. And um, we then started to understand the real challenge of, uh, of the scene in Sierra Leone, you know, the whole con the whole concept of how you get things through customs and into the country. It, it became apparent that not only was this riding community riding on bad roads with bad kit, but also getting any kind of material through, through to them was not straightforward. So, um, yeah, in our usual science in sport way, being stubborn, we then doubled down and committed to get more and more uh, nutrition and, and, and other bits of kit through to them. Um, and it was a while after we got involved in the race. To browse science in sports full range, go to scienceinsport.com. This is Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the pack. 
Oh, well, oh, well, my weekend of glory in the Basque Country is almost over. And because now I have appeared on Netflix eating a banana, I've decided uh, that I was going to be big-headed. My weekend of glory, why? Because first of all, yesterday we went up La Côte de Piquet, like my name, of course, and that was uh, pretty emotional for me. I got loads of messages from my family and friends and relatives. And today, guess where we finished? In San Sebastian, of course, my city. Anyway, a glorious weekend uh, for uh, myself, big-headed me, in the Basque country, uh, and it finished with a bang. Well, it's not over yet because tomorrow we're leaving again from, uh, from the Basque country. But a glorious um, finish on this Sunday with the victory of Victor Lafay, an absolutely charming individual. I'm sure you've talked about him quite a bit. And it's really great to see that a Frenchman can still win a stage on the Tour de France, beating the likes of Pogacar, Vingegaard, Van Aert and all the others. So, adieu le pays basque and can't wait to get back into France. Well, that was Sebastian Piquet, the undisputed star of the Netflix series, the voice of Radio Tour and very good friend of the cycling podcast. Uh, The whole weekend has been in his honour, clearly. Um, But it has been a quest. Well, it's been an aggressive opening weekend in terms of the overall favourites. I mean, Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard kind of sparring this afternoon, weren't they? But Mitch, as you said... That sprint at the top of the Heiskebel was absolutely all guns blazing, wasn't it? I mean, they opened such a gap and they were both going hell for leather for those few seconds. It was Bearing a, in mind, it's only three seconds difference between eight and five for first and second places. It was amazing. It was really, really amazing. As the pace kept getting lifted up, you've got to remember what Adam Yates was doing. That, that group was probably about 15 to 20 big before... Adam Yates took the front. Next thing you're down to about six, seven riders. So the pace is obviously crazy. Simon Yates hit off Adam and just took the pace up to another notch. But I and then you know Pagacha, Vingegaard, they they really sprinted off like they were riding with juniors. It really blew me away. It was really like okay, these are the two guys. They really showed it in that one split second moment there. I actually, only in hindsight, I really realised what the whole plan was, and it was only talking to you, Francois, mm. and you sort of broke it down, that actually Vingegaard sort of got in the way of UAE trying to essentially pass the jersey on to Simon Yates. Yeah. It's always difficult to think that there might be kind of agreements between teams ahead of the race, but I mean, the way, as you say, the way the things unfolded uh, seems to indicate that re- really... UAE's plan was to pass over, get rid of the jersey because it's always a burden, as we know, to Jayco, uh, and, and especially because I mean it was Adam Yates handed the, ending the jersey to his brother, so it was it was it was a perfect scenario, it was a perfect story. Uh, don't worry, some somebody, <laughs> yeah, not some, one of our glasses. Some, some don't people worry, breaking the glass behind me. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, so so that was the, I think that was the plan. And as you pointed out, uh, as we was uh, we were discussing that, Mitch, uh, we saw Lawson Craddock, you know, there uh, leading the sprint for Simon Yates in the climb, you know, because there were eight seconds to be caught. So obviously there, there was. I mean, it was in the, in the best interest of Jacob Lula and of you know, UAE Team Emirates to. Yeah, to, to have Simon Yes taking the eight seconds, uh, even if Adam you know was just behind, take over uh, the yellow jersey, defend it, defend it for the rest of the week, and uh, but 
I mean, the, the, there's always a but, and the but is uh, Jumbo Visma. Obviously, Jumbo Visma had other plans, and Jonas Vingegaard had other plans. And to, uh, to have Ving Jonas Vingegaard coming into the mix forced Tadej Pogacar to, mm. you know, jump, you know, well, to, to actually say, okay, forget the plan. I have to, you know, you, we can't leave uh, Jonas Vingegaard take a, a few seconds at the top there. He had to go, and unfortunately for the Yates brothers, well, not... A, for Adam who kept his jersey but I mean the, the, the great plan you made they made at the, at the beginning at the start of the, of the stage probably didn't work It's interesting isn't it Francois because we were talking in our Tour de France preview about how Jumbo Visma's team is almost a classics team mm. with a GC leader and how that would really help them on these opening two days but UAE Team Emirates have turned these two stages into kind of mountain stages really the way Rafael Micah rode on that climb you know the highest Cabell it's a classic climb isn't it it's not a big call but they just absolutely laid everything down and they really uh turn the screw on Jumbo Visma and I think actually the numbers that Jumbo Visma had coming over the top probably pretty encouraging and I think for the rest of the race UAE Team Emirates and Jumbo Visma are looking incredibly well matched not just the leaders but the, the support riders behind them my only concern is is that look I know it doesn't take a lot out of it but when we're talking three weeks now with teams every little one of these efforts that they're doing is going to count And so I guess my only concern at the very start now is UAE, have, they've, they've committed a lot in the last couple of days already. Um, and, you know, we, we're talking at the end, you know, when you consider what Jumbo Visma have had to do in comparison to UAE. Yeah, they've, they've turned the screws. They've done an amazing job, but they've also started in stage one and stage two. Well, what about Ineos Grenadiers? Because we saw Tom Pidcock have a little go. We thought maybe on the descent he would try something. He is a fantastic descender, of course. And, well, he waited a little bit longer, didn't he, really? Um, but he did try and stretch the legs. Ineos Grenadiers, very quietly, Carlos Rodriguez has been right in the mix both days. But I think the man of the weekend for them, Egan Bernal, because so many question marks about how his recovery is going. And I think we've got a, an early indication of the answer of two really solid days and yes he lost a little bit of time yesterday but he was right in the thick of it today I asked Rod Ellingworth who is the team boss of Ineos Grenadiers just how happy he was with these well they are the green shoots of recovery aren't they but clearly Bernal is going pretty well well Rod I'm sure you're not getting carried away but <coughs> you must be encouraged by how well Egan Bernal has done over these first two days given how aggressive it's been <coughs> on the climbs Yeah, I, th I think so. I think he was disappointed yesterday to not being in that other select group. I think you know it's one thing and another, and he d he was slightly out of place on that climb to to miss the wheels really, rather than him going backwards. But you know there were so many people, wasn't it, lined out, and then the gap was there. But um, yeah, he he seems really happy, and be, to be fair to him, bloody hell, he's done really well, hasn't he, to get to get back where he is. And let's just see. I mean, he's got the opportunity just to every day just to see what he can do, and that's what that's what this is all about, really. Yeah, yeah. What about the team as a whole? Because it doesn't look like the Team Sky of old where the goal was absolutely crystal clear and everyone was aligned behind that goal. It looks like there's a lot more options, but also a bit more uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're in that we're in that position at the moment. Um, I think if, you know, if Egan hadn't have had his accident, I think it'd be a completely different ball game. So I think, you know, life is what it is. Unfortunately, uh, we just got to roll with it at the moment. And you know, I, I would say on a natural progression, if Egan, you know, won the Tour 19, the the Giro a couple of years ago, he was making progression. I think he would have been better. I, 
we wouldn't be talking about the same. I think we'd have a very strong team supporting a, a very strong contender. So it sort of left us a little bit short for the tour, you know, and, we, and, and obviously for Geraint, we, we, you know, we agreed with him the, the Giro and we went full for the Giro. So it is what it is. I think they're a really talented bunch. We've got some lads who are growing and developing and, you know, that's, that's the game we've, we're playing at the moment is, is bringing some new guys into the, into the team as well, like, uh, like Ben and Carlos. Well, I guess all of the GC riders will be relieved that these two hilly days in the Basque Country are now behind them. And there's, OK, the stress of the sprint finishes is a completely different challenge, but uh, the race is not going to be, the spotlight of the race is not going to be on them for a couple of days until we get towards the Pyrenees. But Might be echelons, uh, you know, it's always, it's always tricky, you know, never know. But, yeah. Uh, conventionally, well, you're right, you're right, but who will be happy about the way things have gone this weekend I would say looking at the GC Mike Woods Jai Hindley Mikel Landa Matthias Skelmoser and David Godou I mean we were talking about Godou being potentially in for a real disappointing tour after the way uh, his build up went Pino dropped back today disappointing for him but maybe not in the long term because it might free him up a bit for stages later on but Godou a nice solid opening weekend and no time lost really mm. yeah he was, he was he was at the back of that leading group most of the time well today and and, and yesterday as well struggling a little bit but which, which might be a good sign in a way because you know once again these guys they, 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 they really try to time their form to pick in the third week as I said you know before in the preview Godu is has often been even in the Welta on the other Grand Tours a man of the third week so yeah for him to start a third, uh, first week like, like this is pretty, pretty good. And Mitch, you saw Jai Hindley of Bora Hansgrohe, Giro champion a couple of years ago, come in. And, well, what did he look like coming in at the finish? Yeah, I caught his eye as he crossed the line. I was just standing in the buses. So he must have finished the stage within about 20 seconds of the finish there. But he looked spent. Dirt over his face. You know, they got a bit of rain out there today. It looked like he just finished a classics race. Very drawn face. That just shows me... Not necessarily about you know how he was, but just in general how hard these stages have been. Um, when you talk about the GC guys and who's really showing something, Mike Woods. I'm really impressed with Mike. And he's been trying to put this together at the tour for a number of years now. For whatever reason, you know, crashes and inexperience or whatever. He's got the form now. I spoke to one of his soigneurs. He said it's the leanest he's ever been. So he's in really good shape. You know, um, everyone's probably listening to this going, oh, of course he's got to be lean. But, you know, these guys are super lean. And for him to go to that next level and still be performing well, because it's a tr- slippery slope, you get super lean and you don't perform. So it's good to see that everything's coming together for him. You know, I've got a personal sort of interest there. Great guy, a good friend of mine. So I'm loving seeing him right up there being aggressive. And this kind of racing does suit him here. Interesting. You know, a couple of couple of good sort of guys I've got an eye on are right up there, Jai and uh, Woodsy. Well, we were at the start in Vittoria this morning, weren't we? Loitering around the team buses. Let's hear who I spoke to outside the team bus. Rendezvous au bus. Who is it outside the team bus? Jens, I guess yesterday was a day you've been lo- looking forward to for a long while. Yeah, and it was an emotional one. Huh? Uh, <laughs> a lot of things happening before the start, uh, during the race and after the race. So, uh, yeah, just needed to take a, a, a 
an hour myself on the bike afterwards. <laughs> what happened before the stage then? Yeah, it's just a massive feeling, you know, uh, the whole system just rolling in there in Bilbao, knowing that we're wow, now we are here and now it's all getting started. Uh, yeah, a lot of energy into it, a lot of excitement and, of course, uh, a bit nervous. How important was it to make sure you got somebody in the break? Not too important, to be honest. The, the, our main target was to try to do, do a good race in, in the end of the day tomorrow, yesterday. But when Jonas is there, then, of course, we are doing what we can to get those points. The UAE and uh, Jumbo wasn't too nice with us, so they didn't let us go for more than, I would say, 90 seconds or so. So uh, it, it was a hard day out for them and, and not too much to gain out of it. But just doing what we could do yesterday with Jonas at the first climb there, it illustrates our thinking and, and what we want to achieve. Is it what you expected? And more importantly, is it what the riders expected? I mean, I know you've got some experience in there, but there's a lot of first-timers here as well, isn't there? Yeah, it's a lot of first-timers, but at the same time, these are first-timers already racing uh, Ronde van Flanderen or Paris-Roubaix or Dauphiné or Paris-Nice already this year. It is what it is for them. They know how to race on the bike. Of course, everything is just enormous here, but they will get used to that. It will take some time, but they're in good shape and they will do good, uh, have good race days. So who should we be looking out for in particular over the next uh, week or so? Oh, it's, uh, we are, it's a different phases. Huh? We have uh, one more day here now in Bujajski Bell and San Sebastian, uh, Tobias the twin, uh, one of the twins, and then we will go into more of a sprint focus the next uh, two days with, uh, with Alexander. And then we will see when we get into the Pyrenees, it will get more complex, probably a GC fight where we need to hide a bit from that and, and hopefully can get an advantage of that later on in the second week and the third week. So we are here trying to make that stage win and, and we can't uh, use all our matches the first week. And finally, is there a sense that you are the underdogs? I mean, I know you're a well-funded team, but you're new on the block. Do you get that feeling? Yes, absolutely. And I love that position. And I, I love. I, we want to come here with a lot of energy, be happy people on the road, not only the riders, but everyone around. Um, we, 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 the underdog position, I love it. And I think it's, a, it's perfect for us uh, this year with, with the, the team, a versatile team we have here. So we're going to give full gas and see where it takes us. Stacey Snyder's fantastic ceramics went on sale yesterday, as they always do on the opening day of a Grand Tour. Her uh, mugs, cappuccino cups and gelato bowls, and they sold out in minutes yet again, as they always do. Well done if you managed to get hold of one of Stacey Snyder's fantastic ceramic pieces of art. They are works of art, really. They're not just uh, cups or bowls, they're pieces of art. And... They feature the motif of this year's tour, really, because the image on the side is the Guggenheim Museum mm. that we've left behind in Bilbao, the silhouette of the Puy de Dom, which we'll be visiting at the weekend or towards the weekend. I forget which day it is. I think it might actually be Sunday before the rest day. And then, of course, the Arc de Triomphe, where the Tour de France arrives in Paris. Now, every year the proceeds of the sales of the cups goes towards a good cause and we would like you our listeners to suggest a good cause hopefully a cycling related one so if you have an idea email us contact at thecyclingpodcast.com and of course the Tour de France Grand Cru the case of wine put together so expertly by Greg Andrews and the team at Divine Cellars in London is on sale now you can find out more about that at divinesellers.com or go to our website, thecyclingpodcast.com. And finally, Kilometer Zero continues tomorrow. Slight shuffling of the order, actually, uh, because we're going to kick off the first part of 
FT's tour tales as Francois winds down towards retirement on Thursday. <laughs> we've recorded a series of some of his is most he memorable retiring? stories. Is he retiring <laughs> from I, the I know, tour? He's not mentioned it, has he? I had, I had no idea. <laughs> he's not mentioned it at all. I mean, you know, it's an it's amazing he got dressed this morning. He's he's so so close to checking out. But we've recorded a fantastic series of Francois's tour memories from down the years. I think uh, runs to four or five parts. The first part takes us right back to the beginning of Francois's relationship with the Tour de France, and mm. that will be available for friends of the podcast. Sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com. You honestly don't want to miss it. It was a riot to record that. Uh, I mean, it's a good job some of the stories are behind the paywall, Francois, because, uh, well, it's your reputation. It's your reputation. Uh, right. We heard just before the break there, Jens Haugland, the charismatic boss of Uno X. He's also the boss of the, the company. So I wonder who's running their uh, fuel empire, the fuel service stations, uh, their automated service stations across Norway and parts of Denmark but they are here in their first Tour de France with a really inexperienced team they've got eight riders of course like everybody else seven of whom are Tour de France debutants the only rider who's ridden the Tour before is of course Alexander Christophe multiple Tour stage winner this is his 10th Tour de France so I guess he's ridden one Tour for each one of his teammates plus a couple for himself uh, but Mitch, you were getting a bit mm. of intel. They might well be underdogs, but perhaps people may underestimate them over the next couple of days. Well, I'm getting excited now because the sprint stage is on the cusp. Tomorrow will be a sprint stage. Well, look like one anyway on paper. So I started getting out there and having a chat to di- a few different people. I was speaking to recently retired Ilio Kesa at the finish today. He's doing a von course for quick step Sudal and I was chatting to him about it and he alluded me to how strong Uno X's lead out train is that's something that sort of slipped through the cracks for me I didn't actually get to watch Tour of Belgium this year unfortunately he was telling me how strong they were powerful and as a unit so I immediately walked over to Uno X's bus after talking to him and I wanted to hear about firsthand. so I pulled Gabriel Rush aside aka Gabba and just asked him a little bit about how that team's looking for the sprints what I was interested to know was they may be strong at Tour of Belgium they may be strong in their own races but the Tour de France is a different kettle of fish it is the pressure it is the intense racing can they put that together tomorrow that were the questions I was asking him and he said yeah that's a question I'm also wondering myself managing the expectation he's given a lot of advice to them I asked him what piece of advice have you given them he said actually it's just all the simple stuff he actually said you know I made a joke with him he said you know I'm making sure they're having a shower straight after the stage and you know having their breakfast I was like well it's good to see all the boys are showering you know but I think (laughs) I mean they're not that inexperienced surely they know to eat and have a shower well that's the thing as a pro you forget to shower don't you you know like there's been numerous tours where I'm three, four days in. I've, I haven't had a shower yet. Oh, no. come on. <laughs> no, Look, but I think the point he yeah, was trying to... remember last year. <laughs> <laughs> the point he's trying to get across is you can get overwhelmed with all the whole things and you just yeah. got to keep ticking off the small things, keep it routine. So I'm really excited about tomorrow's stage. Let's see these sprint trains get working. Um, Uno X... I was, wasn't really on my radar. I didn't know about their sprint train, but now I'm, I'm really intrigued. 
Well, a lot of the spotlight tomorrow will be on the likes of Jasper Philipsen, Fabio Jakobsen, Dylan Groenewegen. We anticipate a sprint finish. I mean, as Francois says, anything could happen. It might be windy on the way to Bayonne. I mean... Uh, a lot of coastal. Yeah, a lot of coastal yeah, tomorrow. But the, the big story, as far as the sprinters are concerned, um, is Mark Cavendish. He's on the Astana team. He won the final stage of the Giro. This is his last Tour de France. He's tied with Eddie Merckx with the all-time record 34 stage wins and of course everyone wants to know whether he can win the 35th we don't really do speculation on the cycling podcast as you know but Mitch you spoke to Mark Renshaw and I thought it was really significant that Renshaw has been parachuted into the Astana uh, backroom staff on the eve of the tour really I mean it was only announced a few days before I don't know how uh, far back this uh, idea went but it's only just come to fruition and of course Renshaw was Cavendish's wingman on the road led him out to so many of those stage wins and now yes he's not going to be on the road alongside Cavendish but Mitch you spoke to him to find out uh, just what his role is going to be over the next couple of days. Look, I'll say no more. I think the interview speaks for itself. This has been brewing for a long time and Mark's really keen to get back across here into Europe something he's missed. I'll let the interview speak for itself. Tell me about how this job came about um, working back at Astana with Cav. Yeah, so, look, we spoke on and off over the last few years. It's hard. When I was in Australia, he was here racing, and, yeah, life kind of goes on. But um, when he went to Astana, I first floated the idea that if he needed some help, get in contact. Of course, he'd love to have me on board, so he put me in contact with Fofanoff, who was an old teammate. Um, that's already back in February, and really... Uh, at that stage, they kind of didn't have the, you know, the funds or the timing and, and know what was going to happen with Cav. And, yeah, just before the tour, they kind of pulled the, pulled the trigger and said, yeah, we'd love to have you. Worked out the fine print and, and got on a plane and got over it. What exactly is your role then? Obviously, my background coming from sprint and lead out, uh, it's more to advise around the sprint and lead out rather than the day-to-day other stages i kind of prepare all the team meeting around the sprints especially the bonus sprints each day um a lot of uh, i suppose analyzation of prior sprints prior lead outs uh obviously with bowl and cavendish they've raced about four or five times so we we broke down all those stages Uh, i really looked in depth how and what we could do to improve that and then going forward day to day now just preparing the the team meeting for the sprint stages and, and organizing points i've already done uh, a lot of recon for stage three so really just give them insight and, and prepare best possible for that obviously you know mark's got a lot of trust in you you guys work so well together over those years so when you're looking to this sprint train now in asana how do you envision it working with the guys that you've got on board Bowles are definitely the last man you know he's a, he's a good sprinter in his own right and can win races so He'll slot into that last man. Um, You know, going forward from day to day, we'll change, I suppose, the the order up. You know, we've got a good young guy in Fedorov, world champion in under-23s. You know, super powerful Belgium, classics-style rider. Luis Leon Sanchez, Sanchez, who's uh, 20 years pro, so if he doesn't know how to guide you through the the hectic final few kilometres, no one can. Uh, Lusenko's already out of GC, so he's going to be more than happy to, to pitch a hand. So we've got some classy riders. Okay, we don't have the experience of, you know, quick step and these guys, but if they can put him in position, like I said, and, and you know, he'll have to just ride off feeling and, and be at the right place at the right moment. 
What sort of advice you've been able to give these guys? You know, all that experience you've been working with Cavendish over the years, and like you said, these guys are probably the one thing they're lacking. They've definitely got the horsepower, but when it comes to a sprint train, it's all about experience and feel and trust. You've got to sort of fast forward this process, pass on your experience from one working with Cav, but two being a lead out man for all those years. What's some advice you've sort of passed on to them? You know, we've got a big sort of role here. Cavs, you know, not only to win a tour stage, but th- we're talking about this record here. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's that was my words to bowl is kind of you hold the keys here to, to history. So without putting too much pressure on your shoulders, um, you know, if, if you perform, then we're going to be successful because looking at Cav, he's in shape, analysed some of his sprints leading up to it you know downloaded some of his training peaks and just the the sprints we did before the race you know he's he's punching out some of his best numbers uh so then it comes down to a little bit of luck and positioning so you know so far it's been good he hasn't touched down at all he's fit he's healthy so now it's just going to come down to positioning tomorrow well chaps we've kind of spoiled yesterday's dinner tomorrow's stage in a way but let's hear the jingle anyway L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Francois, last night we were in Bilbao and I saw black pudding on the menu and in honour of the Yates twins, who are from Berry, of course, the home of good British black pudding, there are very good, uh, very good imitations in both France and the Basque country, <laughs> let me put it that way, Boudin Noir in France, mm-hmm. and uh, the Basques have a version as well, and I, I basically had an, an English breakfast for dinner, fried eggs, chips, some bacon, and some big meaty black pudding, uh, it was my homage to the Yates brothers, and it was really quite good, what did you have? I, uh, I had what they, well, what they called uh, risotto de maricos, Usually in Spain they call it arroz instead of risotto, but I mean it's, it's the same principle. You rice and uh, and you know seafood, and it was was pretty good actually. Yeah, no, light, simple, but that's what I liked about the place we were last night. It was very simple food, but well done and uh, nice atmosphere. You know, uh, no excellent stuff. Mitch, what's on the menu for the riders tomorrow? Well, it's stage three tomorrow. It's 187.4 kilometres. It's a sprint stage, like I said before. Amore Bieta. It's from Amore Bieta all the way across to Bayonne in France. We're heading back to the motherland. It is the Tour de France at the end of the day, and we're going to have to say goodbye to the Basque country. It's on the coast. That's one thing I noticed straight away. It's right there on the coast. If we don't have wind, it also means very technical. Left, rights, you know, up and down. It's going to make for a stressful day. If there's wind, it's going to make it even worse. There's four category climbs tomorrow, two Cat 3s, two Cat 4s. Nothing crazy, but again, a chance to get some points. I know Nielsen Powerless, because he's not that far ahead, will probably be looking to get up the road again. There's a sprint at kilometre 65. It's an uphill start tomorrow as well. There's a little uphill start after 6K. So that could help Nielsen to get in that breakaway obviously a very good climber but it also could cause a little bit of distress for the cli- uh, for the sprinters so once again another great day a very stressful day
So looks simple on paper, but may well not be. Uh, Francois, we're heading back into France tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's been some civil unrest in France. Uh, Christian Prudhomme has been talking about the measures to uh, mitigate any protests, social justice, climate change protests that may be on the cards. I mean, it does feel uh, fairly febrile uh, in the, across the whole of Europe at the moment. I mean, uh, the first thing that happened on Thursday night when we went to the team presentation was I came out of the metro in Bilbao and there was a big pro- uh, protest outside uh, a government building basically uh, appealing for fair wages and then actually our hotel was uh, was targeted by a noisy protest I mean it wasn't aggressive in any way it was just a noisy protest they did throw a lot of ticker tape into the lobby of the uh, the hotel and stuck some stickers on the on the window and they were protesting to say that uh, without uh, fair wages and without a, a strong hospitality sector, the tour is nothing and it does feel a little like well you can tell me about the the the, the more serious civil unrest but it does feel like the tour is on the radar of protesters who have a cause to highlight a bit like historically it's always been i mean it's often been uh, french farmers who protested we're going to talk a little bit about the the basque separatist etta Uh, who disrupted the race in, well, quite a few times in Mm. the 80s and 90s for a kilometre zero that we're making. But what's the atmosphere in France? What's actually going on? And what do you anticipate happening over the next couple of weeks? Unfortunately, a a, a young 17-year-old kid from the suburbs of uh, Paris in Nanterre was uh, shot by a policeman and it spurred uh, chain reaction all through throughout France and throughout the suburbs and uh, and the places where you, you got lots of uh, working class areas where you have lots of people coming from you know the the, the, the the former French colonies there was protests at first and then the protests turned into into riots first of all you know for I could say almost a legitimate reason I mean you could you can understand why like in the George Floyd uh, you know Black Lives Matter movement in 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 the US there was really the tension had been building up for months and years and years and years, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you just need, unfortunately, uh, you know, a, a tragedy like like this for uh, you know riots to 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 arrive. My impression with the Tour de France, of course, the question has been asked many times to Christian Prudhomme. Of course, they're going to to act like what we know for for, for the time. They're being very discreet about it, obviously. But what we know is that there's already you know security guards. Uh, you know, looking after the buses and the hotels overnight to make sure there's no problem. There's also secu- security guys, you know, looking after the village when they to the village, the, the start villages, you know, as you know, build up overnight. Uh, so these are the weak spots, maybe, you know, mm. for uh, attacks. But my personal impression, I, I might be wrong about that, but is I, I don't think that the tour is is really threatened. Is the main goal of the. Uh, uh, rioters, because there's there's many different Frances, and uh, so sometimes you, you, you we have a tendency to cut you know countries in two, like the upper class, the lower class, and there are two Frances or two Britons, but there are more that there, there are more than those. My impression is that the population, that very young kids, you know, 12, 12, most of them are twelve to seventeen, the, the, mm. and there are girls, so uh, lots of girls, you know, right? And the Tour de France is not part of their culture; they hardly know it exists, and they or, and and they, they hardly care about it so I don't think they see it as a symbol to be destroyed uh, and there's nothing to steal ex- except 
bikes eventually, but I, I don't think they, they would. And also, we're mostly going through small town except Bordeaux and Clermont-Ferrand for the rest day. And by then, I, I guess probably the tension will uh, have come down a little bit. I'm, I'm more expecting like climate change protesters mm. because it, it's more linked to the history of the tour and to what the tour is doing, like going back to Puy-de-Dôme that's been you know close to cycling for many years for environmental reasons might be a better target I guess for protesters. Yeah I think we see don't we with this huge crowd in the Basque country and let's let's say I mean the, the crowds have behaved fantastically I mean the Basque fans always invade the Pyrenees every year don't they with the the, 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 the very familiar flag the green white and red flag and they create a, an incredible atmosphere there were huge crowds on the climbs both yesterday and today and the Tour de France exists on the basis of an enormous amount of trust doesn't it that's the thing about the tour it, it, it is an event for the people the people are encouraged to come out onto the roadside cheer on the riders the riders are within touching distance of uh, large numbers of people and there is that sense of the whole event happens because the riders trust that they will be safe uh, the organizers trust that the fans will know what the line is and so when there is kind of a uh, unrest you know, social justice movements and uh, climate change movements, all of which have a valid point to make, there's a a little bit of tension, a little bit of worry that that something, we certainly don't want to see something that causes an incident in the race. And that's a real tricky one to, tricky line to tread because we can all say to what extent we sympathise with the causes, but we have to uphold that trust between the race and the spectators. Otherwise, well, we don't have a Tour de France, ultimately. Yeah. There's um, been a strong support of, you know, sports sports people in France, and especially football players coming from the same areas that, that the kids were rioting. For, not for the rioters, but at least for, for the cause, you know, they're fighting for. Uh, so far, you know, once again, French French riders have not expressed an, any opinion on this on the matter. Well, we should leave it there because uh, it's time to go and find some more black pudding or, you know, I don't know. I, w- I haven't really embraced the pinchos just yet. I wanna, you you I wanna want another breakfast for dinner? Lovely, no, yeah, great. I, I'm loving the English breakfast for dinner. Yeah, it's such a well, healthy breakfast night, too. Before we recorded, Mitch, you had an array of things brought out and I didn't indulge in those because I was kind of concentrating on the podcast. I mean, I'm not saying you weren't, but... You're watching uh, your weight, are you? That's what you're trying to <laughs> yeah, say. I am also watching my weight. But maybe I would like to, yeah, sample a bit of the Pinchos this evening. We will be back tomorrow to recap Stage 3 to Bayonne. Until then, Mitch, thank you very much. Thank you. And Francois, thank Thanks. you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.